speaker this afternoon is Jim Hewitt. Jim served as a member of the Lincoln Bar Association and the American Bar Association. In addition, he was president of the Nebraska State Bar Association in, 18, in 1985 and 1986. After years of legal service, he earned a Ph.D. in history from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and is currently an adjunct professor of history at Nebraska Wesleyan University. He has a long connection to the Center for Great Plains Studies, serving as the president of our Friends Board for many years. His recent book, Slipping Backward, A History of the Nebraska Supreme Court, is available out in the lobby. And the title of his seminar this afternoon is Taking the Court Public. Please help me welcome Jim Hewitt. Thank you very much, Jim. I appreciate it. I've been looking around the crowd as you come in, and you seem to be sort of a mixed bag, actually. Um, I'm older than an awful lot of you, uh, some of you students. And uh, when I was a young man, my mother was very, very insistent that I be well-behaved. She wanted me to be mannerly. Uh, above almost everything else. I was taught to stand when a lady came in the room. I was ta taught to pull out a chair when uh, a woman was to sit down. I was to walk on the curbside uh, uh, when we were walking outside so that if any mud or offal splashed up on us, I would get it rather than the, the lady. Um, and she said, you should always thank people who have done nice things for you. And so, before I commence what I think will probably be one of the more spellbinding efforts you've heard in a long time, um, before I commence, I want to thank some people to whom I owe a significant debt of gratitude. Uh, to Jim Stubendick and the, the center, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you this afternoon. To my Ph.D. advisor, John Wonder, uh, who, who really led me uh, in the right direction, and I'm sure it was a, a real burden as far as he was concerned, uh, the entire membership of the Department of History at the University of Nebraska, who taught me lots and lots of things and made me, hopefully, a, a historian of some kind. Uh, to my friends at the University of Nebraska College of Law, I can't thank anybody specifically at the College of Law because they're all dead, everybody that was there when I was there. But um, John, John Gradwall is the only person at the, the College of Law uh, who, who would even know who I was, I think. But um, I do remember John very, very well. Um, a, a long time ago, I, I was on the Nebraska Law Review, and John was one of the editors. He may have been the complete editor, I'm not sure. But in any event, I remember the first fledgling effort that I made for the Law Review. I handed it in, and uh, John came up to me in the hall of what is called now former law, used to be where Jack the janitor hung out. But um, in any event, we were all over there, and John came up to me in the hall, and he said, Jim, this just won't do. Now, if any of you know John Gradwell, you know that isn't what he said, but it's the expurgated version. And um, that was 55 years ago, and I remember it as though it were yesterday. Um, he made a very strong impression on me. Hopefully, he was able to polish my prose a little bit. And I also want to thank uh, Nebraska Wesleyan for giving me an opportunity to teach. I've enjoyed teaching 
very much. Uh, teaching is fun. You have all these little kids who sit there, and it, it's like trying a case to a jury that you know can't do you any harm. It's, uh, it's really lots of fun. And uh, my colleagues at Wesleyan have uh, put up with my heresies. Uh, I think it bothers them when I get ready to go to class and say, well, now I'm going to pound some education into the little bastards. But they, they, uh, <clears throat> I, I think they think that's probably not the right attitude, but that's my attitude in any event. I've practiced law in Nebraska since 1956. I was vice president and general counsel of NEBCO for 41 years, and uh, I knew that sooner or later I was going to have to do something else, that the time would come when I had to find something. I was, I was going to retire, and I had to do something else. I've been the president of the Friends for a long time, and back in the early 90s when John Wonder was the incumbent director of the, uh, uh, of the center, uh, there was a symposium on law and the Great Plains, and I said to John, John, what you need to do is have somebody prepare a paper on vigilante activity in Nebraska, because there was quite a bit of it. And uh, it's really kind of a fascinating story. And he said, well, you ought to do it. And I said, I don't know. I don't have time. I don't want to do it. He said, no, you should. And he insisted. And so finally, I prepared a, a uh, sort of a little syllabus or a, a, a precy of what I was going to say. And I handed it in. And they looked at it. And they said, OK, we'll let you. you talk at the, the symposium, and so I did. And then they actually published the paper in the Great Plains Quarterly, and uh, I was hooked. Uh, so I went back to school, and uh, over a period of time, I got my master's degree. Uh, I, uh, I got that in 1994. I finished all my coursework and took my comps for my PhD in 1998, and then I engaged in an and those of you who know what happened will appreciate this. I engaged in what was an abortive attempt to be elected to the Nebraska legislature. And it didn't work. Um, but, so I postponed my dissertation for a while, but I finally got it done. And um, after I was finished, uh, I enjoyed it very much. And, and I've been at Wesleyan uh, ever since I retired from NEBCO. Slipping backward is essentially a rewrite of my dissertation. I took out some things about the Nebraska Supreme Court, and I put in, a, I think, a few more jokes. But um, in any case, the people have said, where, where does the name come from? Those of you who are familiar with mythology, I'm sure, are aware of the story of Sisyphus, who was condemned because of his sins to roll a huge boulder uphill. And every time he rolled the boulder up to the top of the hill, something happened and it slipped back. And he slipped backward and he had to start all over again for eternity. That's where the title comes from. Uh, John and I discussed what the dissertation would be about. Uh, we decided that it would be good to have a, a, a history of a state Supreme Court, that there aren't very many histories of state Supreme Courts. I, during the course of my legal career, I argued a lot of cases before the Nebraska Supreme Court with what I would describe as mediocre success. Uh, I lost my first case, I won my last case, and I pretty much broke even during, during the rest of the time. But I was also privileged during my 
active time practicing law to be on the American Bars Committee on the Federal Judiciary, a committee that was charged with the responsibility of investigating all federal judicial nominees. And my responsibility was the Eighth Circuit. So anybody who was going to be a federal judge in the Eighth Circuit, I had to prepare an investigation on them. And then we all, everybody on the committee, and there were 15 of us, everybody worked on Supreme Court nominees. While I was on the committee, Robert Bork came before our committee. Uh, it was very interesting. Uh, we had some members of the committee who I'm quite confident, for political reasons only, decided that Robert Bork, whom we had recently held to be extremely well qualified, was not qualified to serve on the Supreme Court. It was, it was a lot of fun, and uh, we caught a lot of flack, and uh, the president and the uh, counsel for the president were not very happy with us. But in any event, I got a very good education in the selection of judges, in how courts work, how judges operate, and I thought it would be a lot of fun to write a book about an appellate court. When I was the president of the State Bar in 1986, I dealt with Norman Kravosha uh, on almost a weekly basis. He was the Chief Justice at the time. The Bar was very interested in what the court was doing and vice versa. We talked a lot, and so this was just a natural uh, outgrowth, it seems to me, of things that I had done. I felt that a history of the court would be useful. I hope it is. I decided, I decided to concentrate on modern courts. I didn't think it would be much, uh, of much interest to anybody to go back and talk about replevin and bills of attainder and things like that who ha that happened in 1868, uh, right after we'd become a state. So I started with Robert Simmons, who became the Chief Justice in 1938. Simmons was a very interesting man. Simmons had been a 10-year uh, congressman from the 6th District out in Scotts Bluff. He was a very capable individual. Um, he, he was elected in the election of 1938. The position of Chief Justice was vacant at the time. Charles Goss, who had been the Chief Justice, had died in August of 1938. And so almost immediately after the election, as soon as the results were in, Governor Cochran appointed Simmons to be the Chief Justice, and he took office immediately, even before January. So Simmons was the Chief Justice from 1938 until 1963. He was followed by Paul White, a district judge from Lincoln, who was the Chief Justice from 1963 until 1978. Norman Kravosha was the Chief Justice from 1978 until 1987, and Bill Hastings was the Chief Justice from 1987 until 1995. And so I tried to study these four judges and all of the things that happened during their period of incumbency. I read 14,335 Supreme Court opinions. If any of you ever have any difficulty sleeping, let me tell you that there is one really absolutely concrete way to take care of it, and that is to start reading opinions of the Nebraska Supreme Court. I tried to analyze the opinions. I, I tried to calculate the number of opinions that each judge wrote, the number of dissents each judge wrote, 
to try and see who were the hard workers, who were the people, if any, who were sloughing off. There were lots of things um, as far as statistical information uh, that I thought might be helpful. Um, I think the book, after I, after I got it written, I think the book has gotten some, what I would consider at least, to be good reviews. Um, the newspapers, both the, uh, the, the Lincoln Journal has given me a good, a good review. Uh, Mike Kelly in the Omaha World Herald said some very nice things. Uh, some of the bar publications have said nice things. Uh, one review that uh, has not seen the light of day, hasn't been published, but uh, it was shared with me, was uh, not very nice. Uh, the, the author thought that all of the statistical information that I included was very boring. I think he wanted a book like The Brethren that tells all kinds of interesting stories uh, about what the judges are up to and uh, whether or not they knew Elliot Spritzer or anything like that. And uh, the, the big problem with that is judges won't tell you any of that sort of stuff. Maybe they will on the Supreme Court of the United States, but the judges around here won't. Um, I tried to determine trends in what, what the court had done. I tried to, to see how the court decided cases. And uh, all of the judges, one of the things I found most interesting, all of the judges decided ever really considering what the import of their decision was going to be. They went back to the old 19th century notion that we're just going to find up there the appropriate precedent, and we will apply it. They didn't say, well, you know, if we do this, we're going to let a bad guy out to uh, plunder and rape and rob. They didn't say, if we do this, uh, the entire financial system is going to fall down. I'm quite confident that they thought about those things, but they won't admit that they have thought about those things. And if they are thinking about things like that. It makes a difference as to how you argue to the court. It makes a difference as to the information that you present to the court in your brief. It makes a difference as to the way you try the case. So you, you want to think that the court is alert to sociological progression, that it knows what the import of all of this various information is. Uh, and yet you know the court can't really say we're going to take a look at it because if the court does, they are invading the province of the legislature. We have, under our democratic system, a tripartite system of government. We have the legislative, executive, and judicial branches. And the legislative branch, which is elected by the people, is the branch closest to the people, and that's the branch that's supposed to determine policy. The court isn't supposed to determine policy, although the court does determine policy in many, many instances. But they can't say that they are determining policy. The legislature is the group that's supposed to do that. Well, as I say, in the 19th century, the judges decided cases as an exercise in finding what the law was. The law was supposed to be a body of finite, immutable principles. They just plucked it out of the air. They discovered what it was and applied it as far as cases were concerned. Now, and this has changed uh, drastically in, from about the turn of the 20th century, uh, especially on the Supreme Court of the United States, uh, judges are viewed as having the power to interpret the law. They don't have to simply find what the law is. As for me, I prefer the latter view. But I think it means 
But if judges are doing that, there are very few constraints on what their actions are. If judges can interpret the law, if judges can decide what's going on, why can't they say or do almost anything that they want to do? My own personal belief is that law is a product of society. That is a societal tool. I think judges should consider the import of their decisions. I think they should know what it means. I think they should do so even if they have to mask what they are doing in the name of precedent. But that's, these are my positions, and I'll be happy to argue with you or answer any questions that you have either during the course. Feel free if you think I'm wandering off base or, you know, no, don't, don't. Because if I am wandering off base, I don't want to know. I, you know, I think I'm doing a wonderful job. But in any case, you can, answer, you can interrupt me anytime if you want to. Otherwise, I'll answer your questions at the end. But I did tell Kim Whitey when she asked me, what are you going to talk about? I said, I will discuss with you the Mata case, the case that rather recently came down from the Supreme Court of the state of Nebraska that decided that we were not going to use the electric chair as our method of, e of execution. Uh, I'd be happy to tell you what I think about that case and why. But I, let me talk about some of the other things in the book before we get to that. Uh, I will say that, in my opinion, the Mata case was a clear example of a, the court considering the sociological impact of the, case, of, of the case. Their decision clearly led them along the lines of, of saying, this is what we think ought to happen. There isn't any precedent in Nebraska, so this is what we're going to do. But let me tell you about the book a little bit before I, I get into that. I commented on cases in the book where I thought the court made a mistake. I commented on cases in the book where I thought the court did a good job. I commented on the personal idiosyncrasies of a few of the judges. So far, I have not received any packages uh, that, that are very suspicious. Uh, there's been uh, no, no envelopes filled with white powder or anything like that showing up, uh, but you, you never know. Um, I tried to demonstrate, and I think I did, how the court slipped backward in the eyes of the public and in the eyes of lawyers and the Bar Association. The Simmons court was pretty staid. There were seven judges on the court. They, for a period of 18 years, for a period of 18 years, everybody on the court was the same, all of them. It was fun. Uh, there are a few people here who argued before that court. Uh, they were all, virtually all bald. They sat up there looking like nine or seven little owls sitting on a log. It, you know, they, it, was, it was really fun. Uh, they all had different sized chairs. The chairs are much more uniform now, but in those days, their chairs were all different. Everybody picked their own. And some of them would lean backwards in their chair, and about all you could see were the soles of their feet. Um, I often thought that uh, some of them had uh, uh, you know, what I would call appendage jurisprudence. Uh, that's all we knew. Uh, their feet heard the whole story. Their feet made the decision. But um, in any case, it was fun, fun to see them. They, they had one period of, on the court when there was a great deal of infighting uh, between Judge Simmons, the Chief Justice, 
and Judge Carter, who was the leader of the conservative bloc on the court, and the man who served longer on the Nebraska Supreme Court than anybody else, Judge Carter served 36 years on the Nebraska Supreme Court, and, and I think was generally accorded the, the uh, accolade by the bar of being the best judge uh, around. I personally think that Hale McCown was the best judge uh, of all the judges that I studied, but uh, Carter was very good, and Carter and Simmons got in a big fight, and it came up in a case called Ruley, R-U-E-H-L-E versus Ruley, and this is what happened. It was a divorce case, and one of the judges disqualified himself, and so they split three to three, and when you split three to three on the Supreme Court of Nebraska, you affirm the lower court. There's no way that you can change it. Well, Judge Simmons thought the case ought to have a little careful look, and so he appointed a district judge, brought a district judge up to sit with the Supreme Court, and that district judge decided the case in accordance, basically, with what Simmons thought and against what Carter thought the, the answer ought to be. And so Carter wrote a very protracted uh, dissent in which he said, this is unconstitutional. You can't call up somebody you can't bring somebody up to, to sit with the court except under certain very clearly specified conditions, and this is not one of them. Well, one of the problems with Carter's argument was that he had been a district judge before he went to the Supreme Court, and he had been called up to sit with the Supreme Court many times under exactly the circumstances that he was now complaining about. And the court went back and forth arguing about this and fighting internally for several years. And then all of a sudden they quit. I don't know why. Maybe they, they were all getting older. Maybe they just thought, oh, to hell with it. It's just too much of a fight. But they all quit. And it lasted for a period of time. And the bar, I think the bar were the only people who were aware of it. The bar was concerned about this. They thought, what's going on down there at the Supreme Court? But it was, it was interesting. The court made a serious mistake in regard to one of the more despicable people we've ever had in the state of Nebraska, a man named Wesley Peary. Wesley Peary died on death row. It was kind of him. Uh, he spared us all the responsibility of putting him to death. But Wesley Peary, when he was 51 years old, had spent 34 years of his 51 in prison. He was guilty of rape, of robbery, of assault, and murder. Uh, the first time the Supreme Court looked at Wesley Peary, it was on a rape case. He pulled a woman over on an interstate interchange in Sarpy County, held a gun on her, and raped her. Her children were with her in the car. The Supreme Court said, her testimony is not credible. We really don't think that what she said bears a, a lot of weight, and so they let Wesley Peary go. One of the interesting aspects of that, the gun that Wesley Perry held on this woman was a gun that he had stolen in a burglary at the home of Gene Masters, who at the time was the deputy police chief in Lincoln. He was tried, after the rape case, he was tried for stealing the gun and burglarizing Masters' house. The girl that he had raped was called as a witness in the rape case, the court said it's fine to let her testify that, in fact, the gun that he stole from Masters is the gun that he held on her while he was raping her. 
So her testimony was perfectly credible when she testified about the gun, but it was not credible when she testified about the rape. Uh, the court, I think, was way off base on that one. Uh, Perry ultimately was convicted of murder for killing a woman who, with her husband, ran a coin shop in Havelock. Uh, he broke in, uh, put his gun in this woman's mouth, blew the top of her head away, stole a lot of coins. He was working at Wesleyan at the time. This, he was out, out of prison. He was working at Wesleyan. He was one of our, our groundskeepers. We were very proud of him. We don't have a Wesley Perry Award or anything like that at, at Wesleyan, but, uh, you know, he was working there. What he did, th this again sounds like Elliot Spritzer, what he did was to take the coins that he had stolen. Many of them were, were uh, you know, famous coins or, or some were foreign coins. He took these and plugged them into the vending machines at Wesleyan, and finally, when the guy was emptying the vending machines, he said, where are all these coins coming from? He notified the police. They tracked Wesley down, and Wesley was convicted of first-degree murder. As I say, he saved us all a lot of time and money by dying on, on death row. The White Court, the, the second court, uh, was very interesting. White was the last elected chief justice, and he kept saying throughout his period of time, uh, on the court, things are different than when I ran for this job. Uh, in, he, he got on the court in 1963 and when Simmons re retired. And in 1970, the legislature changed the law and made the chief justice the administrative head of the courts. And so he had a significant responsibility at that time that he had not anticipated having. He thought the Supreme Court would just sort of wander along and the district judges would wander along. But now it was his responsibility to look at all these people and try and work something out. Uh, and he didn't do a very good job, and the court kept falling back and back and back. During the Simmons, during the Simmons years, there was very little backlog on the Supreme Court. There weren't a lot of cases being filed. We hadn't had the litigation explosion. Melvin Belli had not come up with his notions of demonstrative evidence. There was just a lot, a lot of, you know, ennui, I guess, would be a good term, um, as far as what was going on. But that was soon to change, and White got caught with it, and the court built up this huge backlog. And sometimes it took three years, three years from the time a case was filed in the Supreme Court before it was argued. I don't know anybody who practices law who thinks other than justice delayed is justice denied. Things happen, witnesses lose all kinds of information, exhibits go out the window. It's a terrible thing to have a backlog of that consequence. And Paul White and his court, although they tried hard, uh, really were absolutely inundated by the cases that came up. His court fought a lot. They were the largest. Nebraska's courts don't dissent very much, but the White court dissented more than anybody else. And they came up with some of the goofiest notions that you'd ever run into. Um, there was one, one opinion by a judge whose name was Robert Smith from Omaha entitled Dubitante. You know, we normally have opinions, dissents, concurrences. I have never seen anywhere else 
a dubitante. What he said was, they may be right here, they may be right there, I am in doubt. So, dubitante. I thought, wow. You know, Smith was an interesting guy. Um, He suffered from narcolepsy. He worked a lot during the night down at the Capitol building. In fact, once he was accosted by a guard at 3 o'clock in the morning, he said, what the hell are you doing here? He said, well, I'm working in my, in my chambers. So, uh, you know, Supreme Court judges rarely work in their chambers at 3, three o'clock at night, but he did. He, uh, he had a belief that there was a certain word that conveyed a meaning, and if you could find that certain word and apply it, you could have a very short opinion. And that the bar called his opinions smithograms. Um, they were they were a little hard to understand. Uh, it was as if he were writing in Sanskrit most of the time. But um, in any event, the judges battled back and forth. There was one opinion where a judge wrote the the majority opinion and then concurred in his own majority opinion. Uh, he said, "I I, I think the author." of the majority opinion does not explain this as thoroughly as it might have been. The only problem was he was the author of the, of the majority opinion. You, you think, what is going on? But anyhow, they were back and forth fighting about all that. And Paul White, who was an interesting man, um, led the court uh, with some very strange peccadilloes. Uh, Paul uh, was, I, I guess the kindest way to put it was that Paul was fond of the fruit of the grape. Um, he, uh, he would come to cocktail parties, and he, the bar had a lot of cocktail parties. You know, what's the bar for? I mean, you know, that, that's, we're members of the bar. We're all there drinking. It's wonderful. But anyhow, he, uh, he would show up with these noxious cigars, and he'd have a drink in one hand, a cigar in the other hand, and all the young lawyers were not alert to the fact that if you saw the Chief Justice coming, the only thing you could do is get out of the way, go someplace else. So he would trap all these poor young lawyers and start telling them his stories. And uh, he told his stories very well because he told them all the time. Um, but in any event, um, Paul, Paul one, one of the things that I, I think was unfortunate, Paul went to a, uh, a conference of Chief Justices out on the West Coast and after having had uh, some of the fruit of the grape, fell in the swimming pool. Um, and, and that really did not make the Nebraska court look like a, a compilation of really brilliant people in the eyes of the other chief justices. And once, while he was uh, the chief justice, he got picked up for DWI here in Lincoln. Um, one of the great apocryphal stories is they, they took him over to the jail, and he spent all night in jail. They took his watch, they took his belt, all the things that they do when you're, you're in jail all night. The court was sitting. The court sits one month or one week out of the month, and the court was sitting during this period of time. And I, I'm sure none of you would ever have any knowledge of this, but in, at 9 o'clock in the morning, they take all the drunks up and run them through the, the, uh, the municipal court. And, and uh, in the, now it's the county court, but in those days it was muni court. And White was standing there shifting from foot to foot, and he said, I've got to be in court at 9 o'clock, and one of the rummies who was sitting there said, don't worry, buddy, we all do. Uh, it, uh, so it was, it was kind of interesting. One of the things that I, I did with, with White, because I, this bothered me, I, I will tell you in all candor, this bothered me. When people die, 
serving on the Supreme Court, the court holds a memorial service for them. And uh, the, the court appoints a, a group of people who come in and, and uh, have this memorial service, and they tell about uh, all of the abilities of the decedent. And it's really a very nice thing, and it's spread on the records of the Supreme Court and published in the Nebraska Supreme Court reports. And that's the only reason I found this out. These memorial services with all of the lawyers and judges saying nice things about the deceased judge are published in the Nebraska Supreme Court reports. Paul White presided over four, four uh, memorial services, and he said exactly the same thing at all four of them. I, I, the second one I read, I thought, gee, I've read this someplace before. By the time I got to the fourth one, I knew I'd read it someplace before, so I published them as an appendix in the book. I thought, well, I'll just show you. So I, I just put them in the appendix, which I thought was kind of fun. And uh, uh, it, one of his phrases was, Judge so-and-so was a real physician of applied liberty. Now, let me say that again. He was a real physician of applied liberty. I've Googled that. I've checked it out in, in uh, oh, I, the, the, you know, the, I can't think of the name. Uh, beg pardon? Uh, you know, where, where you check all the quotations. What's the name? Bartlett. Bartlett's. I couldn't think. Thank you very much. I checked it out in Bartlett's. Nobody, nobody ever mentioned a real physician of applied liberty. I don't think anybody knew what it meant, but Paul White, and I'm somewhat doubtful if he knew what it meant. But in any case, uh, that was, that's what, what he came up with. And then came Norman Kravosha. Norman, it, it was very interesting. Uh, Norman had, had uh, been the right-hand man of Jim Exon for many years. Uh, he, Norman was a very strong Democrat. He'd worked uh, very closely with Exxon. He was an unpaid counsel. He, he would go down and help Exxon uh, on all kinds of issues. Um, he, he had also been the unpaid city attorney. At one time, we decided that we needed a change in the city attorney's office. The, the, uh, some of the members of the council got Norman in as an unpaid city attorney on Mondays. When the council meets, he was down there all day. Uh, the rest of the week, he was down there in the mornings. Um, and he did a wonderful job in both of these. Well, Paul White decided he was going to retire. Nobody knows why. Uh, he said, I've, I've, I've got to leave the office. Maybe he was just sick of it. And Jim Dunleavy, who was his, uh, the, the head of the, the court system at that time, said he didn't know. He said he thought Paul felt that he had to go back to Chicago and do something with some investments that he had in a Holiday Inn. But Dunleavy didn't know. Nobody seems to know why he, why he left. But what he did, what he did was resign at a period of time when Jim Exxon was the governor. White was a Republican. Exxon was a Democrat. He resigned just before the election uh, uh, that Charlie Thone ran against Jerry Whalen for the governorship. And I think most political observers in the state of Nebraska looking at that race said, Charlie Thone is going to win that race. And if he had waited a little while, Charlie Thone would have been able to make 
the, uh, the appointment of a chief justice rather than Jim Exxon. Norman Kravosha, I think I can guarantee you, absolutely would not have been the chief justice of the state of Nebraska if Charlie Thone had made the appointment. But Charlie Thone didn't make the appointment. Jim Exxon made it, and he appointed his right-hand man, Norman Kravosha. I like Norman. I was in law school with him. I've known him for years. I dealt with him when I was president of the bar. He did a very good job as far as being the leader of the Nebraska Supreme Court. But there are those who did not share my opinion. One of the things that Norman did was to switch the way the court decided cases. Normally, when the court decides cases, a judge writes an opinion and he puts his name on it, like Connolly J. is the author of this particular opinion. In Kravosha's reign as Chief Justice, the court had 17.67% of its opinions were what we call per curiam, or unsigned opinions. That's 621 cases were per curiam opinions. Norman let me interview him. So did Les Boslaw, so did Hale McCown, so did Bill Hastings. They were very helpful. They told me a lot of things about the court. I said to Norman, Norman, why? Why did you have so many per curiam opinions? He said, well, he said, you know, sometimes a judge uh, writes a per curiam opinion because he has written the majority opinion and the rest of the court won't adopt it. And so rather than shift it to somebody else, uh, he goes ahead and writes it, but we make it a per curiam opinion. Or he said sometimes judges are a little apprehensive about having their name on an opinion for one reason or another, thinking people might might uh, come after them, and I'll tell you about a case uh, in, in a minute about like that. But 621 times they were concerned about this. The bar was very restive about the number of per curiam opinions that came down during the Kravosha court. That same is true as far as the Hastings court is concerned. But Kravosha had a marvelous, marvelous idea about making the court a public entity. He wanted people to know what the court was doing. He wanted people to understand how the court functioned. He didn't want to hide it behind some sort of mask. He didn't want people to think that these were nine or seven Olympians from on high throwing down Jovian thunderbolts. He wanted the public to know. He, he said, I'd like to take the court to high school gymnasiums and have a covered dish supper and then the next morning, whole court there in the high school gymnasium and let people come in and see it. He, talked, he, was, he gave over 200 speeches a year. Every, time, every year he was the chief justice. He talked to anybody larger than a bridge club. You know, he was, he was just always out there making the court public. The other judges didn't like it. They didn't like it. They didn't want all of the mystique, all of the uh, Olympian aura that surrounded them. Uh, to, to be open. They, they liked, they, I, I guess they thought familiarity breeds contempt, I don't know. But in any event, Norman tried very hard. Uh, he opened up relationships with the bar. We talked to him all the time about problems. We had a very good relationship in that sense. But his court made some mistakes. 
One of the cases that they made was the case of Robert Hunt, which is probably the worst decision handed down by the Nebraska Supreme Court since I have been practicing law. Hunt was a despicable individual. He lived in Norfolk. His, his great desire was to have sex with a, with a dead body. Uh, he, he found a young woman whose name was Beverly Ramspot, whose engagement was announced in the Norfolk Daily News. He selected her. He didn't know anything about her. He selected her. He went to a store in Norfolk. He stole some rope. He stole some. Uh, he stole a BB gun. Uh, he stole some some uh, tape. He went to her house, held the BB gun uh, on her. She didn't realize that it was just a BB gun. She had a trailer. He went, held it on her, uh, made her disrobe, uh, tied her up, took her pantyhose and stuffed them down her throat, which pretty much closed off her airway and ultimately led to her asphyxiation. He took her into the bedroom, masturbated on her body, carried her into the bathroom, put her in the bathtub, put her head under the water until she quit twitching, and then left. Went home and told his wife what he had done, and she called the police. In Nebraska, we have a system of determining whether somebody is going to get the, be executed or not because of the presence or absence of certain circumstances. If there are aggravating circumstances that outweigh mitigating circumstances, then somebody, somebody is going to get the chair or now whatever, whatever we come up with other than the chair. In this particular case, the court said that there were not sufficient aggravating circumstances because even though it was a heinous act, she really didn't suffer for very long. She was uh, asphyxiated, so she passed out rather shortly. And so this did not really constitute an aggravating circumstance. And the court reversed the district court, which had sentenced him to death. Mike Royko, who was a columnist for the Chicago Tribune, read about this case and wrote an absolutely blistering column in which he eviscerated the court and said, this is horrible. Well, the court did not respond. The court normally doesn't respond in situations of that kind. But Norman went to the College of Journalism and gave a speech at the College of Journalism. And one of the students who, to whom he spoke was a stringer for the Chicago Tribune. And Norman said, Mike Royko hasn't read the opinion. He really doesn't know what the facts are. This is all baloney. The stringer called up Mike Royko and says, this is what Kravosha said. Mike Royko wrote another column and just eviscerated them. It was horrible. Finally, Norman had brains enough to shut up, but in, in this particular instance, it really brought down a, a tremendous amount of, of uh, disres disrespect for the, for the court. I thought it was kind of interesting. Royko said, you know, if the judges of the Nebraska Supreme Court don't think this was heinous, he said, what I want you to do is take your robes 
and I will stuff your robes down your throat. And when you cannot breathe any longer, we'll see if you think it is heinous or not. Well, anyhow, that, that is a fight that the court lost without much question. They had another fight that I think they legitimately won. Uh, and, and this was an interesting case involving uh, ConAgra and, and Cargill, a large Minneapolis-based uh, entity. Um, it was, it was uh, very interesting. ConAgra had made a deal to buy a meatpacking plant over in Rockport, Missouri. And then uh, before the, the transaction was consummated, Cargill stepped forward and said, we'll buy it, uh, we'll, we'll pay more than, than, than ConAgra would. And the stockholders of the, the plant said, that sounds like a good deal to us. And they decided to sell it to Cargill. And so ConAgra said, or, uh, Con, yeah, Con, ConAgra said, Cargill has interfered with our business relationship. And they sued in the district court of Douglas County and got a judgment for $15 million. That's a big judgment in Nebraska, $15 million. So they had this judgment for $15 million, and the case was appealed by Cargill, and Cargill won. Cargill won in a 4-3 decision in the Supreme Court. The president of ConAgra at that time was a man named Mike Harper. You may have heard of Mike Harper. He was a former king of Exarban. He was a nabob of the highest order in, in uh Omaha, and he just blistered Kravosha uh, in the in the uh, paper, and uh, he said, "Our chief justice, Kravosha was Jewish. He said our chief justice speaks with an Eastern accent, and he said, I'm going to take Conagra out of Nebraska uh, because we we don't like this kind of justice." So we responded. The, I was president of the bar at the time, and and. Uh, we have a committee that steps forward uh, to protect judges when, when they're being assailed in the press. And they helped uh, decide what we ought to do. And I wrote a letter to, to Harper and, uh, and said, you know, you really shouldn't do this. Uh, you shouldn't say that you're going to leave. Uh, this is fine if it's the legislature, but the court can't determine a case based on citizenship. The court decides it based on what the, the facts are. So Harper came back in the paper and said, I don't know who the hell this Hewitt is, but he doesn't know anything about what he's talking about. And uh, so we engaged in a little colloquy back and forth in that regard. But the court never changed its mind. I think all of the, all of the commentators thought that it was very, very well done. Uh, it's, it, the case is still good law today, and that was a case uh, where where Kravosha really won. And in this particular instance, somebody other than Norman did the talking, and I think it worked out better that way. Um, I'll tell you about one more case uh, for, for him, and then I've got a couple of other points, and I'll wrap this up. There was an interesting case called Vachik against Ames. Vachik against Ames was a suit for alienation of affections and criminal conversation. Alienation of affections is when somebody uh, interferes with the affections of uh, a husband or wife. Criminal conversation is when you deny a husband or wife the exclusive uh, uh, opportunity for intercourse with, with their spouse. The district court in this particular case said, well, we're not going to do this. 
there was a jury verdict for $100,000 in this particular case. Um, Mrs. Vachik was Mr. Ames' secretary, and they traveled a lot, and uh, their, their propinquity led to uh, other activities. And so Mr. Mr. Vachik sued and, uh, and got a verdict for $100,000, and the district judge threw it out. The Supreme Court put it back in effect. The Supreme Court said, no, criminal conversation and alienation of affections are okay, and a wife is worth $100,000. So the, the court allowed it. Um, the legislature in the next session uh, decreed that criminal conversation and alienation of affections will never again uh, give rise to a judgment in Nebraska. I think the case is what biologists would consider to be a sport. But then I always considered that Mrs. Vachik and Mr. Ames were sports as well. Um, in any event... The Hastings Court, which succeeded the Kravosha Court, uh, was, was a good one, but they made a couple of serious mistakes. Uh, Second-degree murder, uh, they, they held, uh, needed to in, incorporate malice in jury instructions, and that led them into a lot of difficulty. They retreated very significantly from Kravosha's openness, uh, and, and they got into a lot of, lot of problems as, as a consequence. But the Kravosha court, as I say, did a lot of good. They had openness all the time. The Hastings court passed a court of appeals. We now have a court of appeals in Nebraska, which is a very good deal. Uh, they had a gender fairness uh, study that, that I think will lead to ultimately having more minorities and more women as judges in Nebraska. And I think it's, it's going to be uh, a very, very uh, successful uh, situation. We have only had one judge of the Supreme Court ever turned out, and that was Judge David Lamphere, who in 1996 uh, was voted down in a retention election because he had written an opinion in which the court threw out term limits in the state of Nebraska. We've had three Supreme Court decisions on term limits. The court has thrown out two of them. Finally, they saw the light and said on the last one, it looks, it looks a little dubious, but it's okay. If this is what the citizenry wants, we're going to do it. Poor Judge Lamphere uh, had his name on the opinion, throwing out term limits, and that's what led to his demise. The next two opinions were per curiam opinions. Uh, so uh, the, court, the court saw the light, I think. Well, I told you that I would talk to you about the Mata case, and, and I will do that, and then that's pretty much... Uh, I, I've rated the judges in, in the book. Uh, I, I told you who, who was good, who was bad. There, there are lots of books for sale. By all means, stop and buy a book. I, mean, I, I re really, uh, really want you to do that. But, um, and, and incidentally, before I start talking about Mata, I, I want to say that uh, Margie Ryan, uh, who is here today, is the marketing director for the University of Nebraska Press. She has helped me a great deal as far as marketing this book is concerned. And uh, I'm very, very much indebted to her and, and to the press. But uh, you don't care about how I rated the judges. Uh, if you want to see how I rated them, buy the book. It's all in there. Uh, but in any case, the Mata case, 
Uh, Mata was another one of those really. We have some really bad guys in Nebraska, and Mata was one of them. Mata killed his girlfriend's three-year-old child, uh, cut the baby's body up into little pieces, tried to flush some of it down the toilet, uh, stopped up his toilet as a consequence, uh, boiled the baby's head, boiled all of the flesh off the baby's skull, uh, fed uh, the, the residue to his dog, um, not not a nice person. He, he's been found guilty on uh, two different trials um, and sentenced to death. And the Supreme Court in the Mata case did not say that he does not deserve the death penalty. All it said was that the electric chair under the Nebraska Constitution constitutes cruel and unusual punishment. Under the Nebraska Constitution, Article 1, Section 9. The federal constitution under Article 8 of the Bill of Rights deals with cruel and unusual punishment, but the Nebraska court did not deal with the federal, did not deal with the federal constitution. It dealt with the state constitution. A brilliant move, in my judgment, on their part that makes this pretty much appeal proof. The Attorney General has said, I'm going to appeal this case to the Supreme Court of the United States. Good luck. Um, he has no prayer of doing that. The Supreme Court of the United States is not going to overturn a judgment of the Supreme Court of Nebraska interpreting the Nebraska Constitution. If we had decided it under the Eighth Amendment to the federal Constitution, I think there would have been an argument that it could have gone to the Supreme Court of the United States, but not the way the case came down. There is no question. I teach a course at Wesleyan called The Death Penalty in Nebraska. And I was fortunate enough to read the briefs in, in, that were filed in the Mata case. I was able to read Judge Hippie's opinion, the district judge in Scotts Bluff, who held that there was no question in his mind that the the electric chair constitutes cruel and unusual punishment because the way the electrodes are put on a head and a leg, there's a tremendous opportunity for things going wrong. There's a tremendous opportunity for burning of flesh. And it's not, it's not at all clear that the, when the electric chair is used that somebody is going to pass out immediately. They may be awake for a while and suffer excruciating pain. And that's, that was the evidentiary record before Judge Hippie in that particular case. He said, I'm not going to hold that this is unconstitutional because the Nebraska Supreme Court has never held that it's unconstitutional. But he said, there is no doubt in my mind that it is cruel and unusual punishment. With that record before it, the Nebraska Supreme Court looked at it and said, it really is a situation where we think it is cruel and unusual punishment, and they threw it out. This leaves us without any form of execution. Uh, the Supreme Court of the United States is now considering whether or not lethal injection is legitimate. Uh, we should know by May what the Supreme Court thinks in that regard. I think they will uphold lethal injection, but I think they will impose some requirements on it that states will have to go through. One of the big problems is that Lethal injection requires somebody who knows something about administering drugs, and nobody with a medical background will do it because it violates, in their judgment, the Hippocratic Oath. The first requirement is, first, you shall do no harm, and so they won't do it. 
So you've got to find somebody who knows what to do to administer this cocktail. I think the Supreme Court will ultimately come down with that particular ruling. But that's the Mata case. Um, I think that it was very unfortunate that our governor and our attorney general said that they were appalled by the action of the Supreme Court. I think the action of the Supreme Court was entirely legitimate. They had an evidentiary record on which they could take the action that they did. Um, I think that, that the governor probably does not, uh, he, he probably should, but I don't think he does understand all the nuances and ramifications of this particular situation. The attorney general is a different, a, a different breed of cat. He does understand, and for him to say that it was appalling and that this, the court made a terrible mistake, uh, in my judgment, was a, a very bad thing. Of course, they have also said that about the legislature uh, on the immigration bill, and the legislature showed them that they probably made a serious mistake in that regard because the legislature didn't do what the governor and the attorney general wanted, and I suspect that will be the case as far as the Supreme Court is concerned. Well, I've talked to you for a long time. I, I, I hope that uh, somehow this gives you some indication of the history of the Supreme Court of Nebraska, things that have happened. I would be more than happy to answer any questions that any of you have. If I can't answer the question, I will either dodge it or I will engage in some sort of really wonderful ledger domain that you, you just have no idea what I'm saying. Yes, sir? Has the Nebraska Supreme Court ever held Yeah. Yes, in, in many instances. I can't, I can't tell you specific cases, but it has. The question, thank you, the question was, has the Nebraska Supreme Court ever acknowledged that, is, that it is different the federal const, than the federal constitution? And my answer is, yes, it has. I cannot specifically point to a specific case, even though I read 14,335 cases, I did not memorize them all. So... Uh, I would have to go back into the files to, to check it out. Yes, sir. The question was, in the Mata case, they talked about language, about they didn't say it quite that way, uh, but the question is, uh, did they talk about evolving standards of decency, and what do I think about evolving standards of decency? The court's headnote, which is headnote 28, said, a court must evaluate claims that punishment is cruel and unusual in the light of contemporary human knowledge. Um, the Supreme Court of the United States is the body that has originally uh, promulgated the doctrine about evolving standards of decency. Uh, what they are saying is that we look at things differently than we did in 1787 when the Constitution was drafted or in 1790 when the Bill of Rights was passed. What, you know, in, in those days, uh, we're not very far re removed from the guillotine uh, in France. We're not very far removed from drawing and quartering as far as England is concerned. So we, we had some idea that some of that was cruel and unusual. And the Supreme Court has said over the years, as society changes, as things move forward, we have different standards of decency than we did long, long ago. I personally think that's a good idea, but that's just my opinion.
Yes, Charlie. The Conagra case. Didn't Conagra lose on appeal when it was appealed to the Supreme Court? Yeah. Okay, I misunderstood. Did I say it wrong? Cargill, Cargill won. No, Conagra lost. Uh, yeah. Charles? The question was, assuming that the Nebraska Supreme Court comes up with a new method of, of execution, will that be retroactive to all of the people who are currently on death row, uh, including Raymond Mata? The court in the Mata case said Mata is guilty of first-degree murder and said he is to be executed. We will wait and see what the legislature comes up with, I am sure that they will say it is procedural rather than substantive, and because it is procedural, it would be retroactive. And so, it is, I, in my judgment, it would not be ex post facto. I think I can guarantee that everybody who is currently in that situation will appeal that to the Supreme Court of the United States. Whether they take it or not is something else again. What was the question? He said, did I run across any interesting, any interesting cases involving motions for rehearing? We seldom have motions for rehearing. Granted, I don't remember. Uh, re no case involving motions for rehearing sticks out in my mind. I don't cite any in the book. The question was, Paul White was the last chief justice elected, but we have elections, but it's under a different system. Yes, judges are elected in a sense in Nebraska. Uh, judges are chosen by a panel of four lawyers and four lay people, and the names of people that are well qualified are sent to the governor, and the governor picks from those names. And then within three years after someone is appointed by the governor, they face a retention election uh, in which the question on the ballot is, should Judge X be retained in, ba in office? And then every six years thereafter, while they remain on the court, uh, it, it is, should Judge X be, remain in office? Uh, it's not a bad deal to run against nobody. Um, the... Uh, <laughs> The statistics are that, that over the span of about the last 20 years, 54 people out of something like 6,000 judicial retention elections have been turned out. The question is, if somebody is applying for a judgeship and his partner or her partner is a member of the panel that selects the list, does that present a conflict of interest? Is that, is that a, an appropriate uh, summation of your question. We, we have not had a, a case in Nebraska that specifically decide, decides that issue, but conflicts of interest are quite clear, and I would think that it would be a situation where the partner would have to recuse themselves.